Today marks an important transition in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. As we move from chapter 25 to chapter 26, we are stepping now into the passion narrative of Jesus. The events of his last days of ministry upon this earth. And it really is a stunning transition. What we've considered in Matthew 24 and 25 and now what we will look at over the next several weeks in Matthew 26 and 27. We've spent the last few Sundays considering the second coming of Christ, his glorious return, his righteous judgment, but now we will look at something far different. We'll consider the humiliation of Christ, the suffering that he endured for our sake. And it's such a, an odd comparison, juxtaposition of the realities of Jesus that we've been considering. Christ, the ultimate authority of the universe, will now willingly submit to earthly and unjust authorities that he established, by the way. Jesus, the word of life, will willingly lay down his life for us. By the will of God, yes, but also by human hands that he created. And I'm really grateful over the next, for the opportunity that we'll have over the next several weeks to to look at these events, to see them unfold, especially as we think about Easter. We won't just get one week to consider all that Christ endured. We'll have almost two months to consider this sacrifice, this stunning display of love from Jesus and our response to it. And that's really where Matthew's account of the last days of Jesus begins and where we'll spend some time focusing today. From the beginning of this final section of his gospel, Matthew wants us to consider our response to the glorious work of Christ, his death and his resurrection. He's been building to this moment for 25 chapters. And it's time for us to consider our response to the good news that he's been offering. And what that response says about the condition of our hearts. Jesus, directly after he finishes teaching the Olivet Discourse, reminds his disciples of his immediate future. Yes, my second coming will be glorious, but the reality, the cause of my first coming is not yet finished. So just to be sure you've not forgotten, here's what it will cost in order for the second coming to be hope-filled for you. Here's what it will cost for that second coming to be a, a day of glorious hope and not of judgment. Verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 26, Jesus finished these sayings and said to his disciples, You know, after two days the Passover is coming. And when it comes, this Passover, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So Jesus now gives us a timeline. We see the Father's plan more clearly. In just a couple of days during the Passover, Jesus will be arrested. He will be delivered of his own will to die. 
And then after this incredible declaration, and again, more clarity as to the, the plan and design of God for the Son, this first coming of, of Christ, Matthew offers us a glimpse of three different reactions to the ministry of Jesus. Two that are, are wicked, surprisingly wicked, and yet even in their wickedness are unwittingly following the divine plan of God. And then one sandwiched between them that is shockingly faithful, stunning in its appropriateness, calling us to consider what we truly value and, and calling us to reconsider what it means to truly worship Jesus. And I hope that what we will walk away with today as a people is the realization that the only appropriate response, the only faithful response to Jesus and his willing sacrifice is extravagant worship. I hope that we will see that a heart that is truly aligned with Christ will overflow in extravagant worship. And a heart that is misaligned divided will reveal a different kind of worship altogether. That even as followers of Jesus, we need to be on guard against. That our supreme loyalty, our supreme desire is for Christ. So let's look at these three reactions, two wicked ones, the faithful one in between, and ask God to give us grace and help to consider our own hearts and, and how aligned we are with Jesus. What our continued response to the, the sacrifice of Jesus is and, and how it is outflowing in our heart. The first reaction is perhaps not a surprising reaction, even though it involves two groups of people that we've not encountered that often in Matthew's gospel, the chief priests and the elders. Here's what Matthew says of the chief priest and the elders and their reaction in verses three through five. The chief priest, the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they also said, let's not do this during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. We've seen to this point in Matthew's gospel, the Pharisees and the scribes, as well as the Sadducees, have issues with Jesus. And while the Pharisees have been long plotting the destruction of Jesus, they have not had the power nor the position to see their desires carried out. They had some spiritual authority among the people and even some influence, but that had only gotten them so far in their quest to see Jesus removed. The chief priests and elders, though, are of a different caliber. They're a different story. They had civic authority. They had connections with Rome. These men could accomplish what the Pharisees desired. And now they are setting their minds to do just that. But the lesson for us today, I think, as we consider their reaction and desire to kill Jesus is found ultimately in the motivation for these actions. The motivation they have to kill Jesus. Why on earth would the chief scribes, the chief priests, the elders, why would they desire to murder Jesus? Why is he such a threat 
to them when he should be the fulfillment of their greatest hope and desires. Now we know the conflict here between the Jewish leadership of the day and Jesus has been unfolding for the entirety of Matthew's gospel. Let me just remind you of all that's been happening and why it's building to this moment. Here's how one commentator summarizes the issue. The Pharisees and scribes believe that Jesus is a blasphemer because he claims to be able to forgive sins, an act that is only appropriate for God. So how is Jesus claiming to be this unless he's claiming to be God? And in their eyes, that's blasphemy. Jesus has supernatural power. That cannot be denied. But they think he is using this supernatural power in an improper way because he heals on the Sabbath. And if he heals on the Sabbath, which according to them is against God, his power must not be from God. It must be from Satan. Jesus places him above the law and tradition. He dismisses any of the leader's request to prove that his power is from God and he discredits them, their way of life, their authority among the people of God. And now it seems the people are so engaged, so enamored with Jesus that he has the ability to stir up a revolt that could lead Rome to act and remove the authority he's entrusted They've entrusted to these chief priests and elders. They could lose their position, lose their power, lose their influence. And Jesus is not worth that to them. The leaders have convinced themselves that this Christ is a threat to their earthly power. He's a threat to their social position and he has got to go. And the condition of their hearts is a warning for us. While it's clear that that these men do not have a heart for God. Even those, those of us who do have a heart for God need to make sure with the power of the Spirit before the Lord and the work of his word that we don't let, we don't allow the desires of this world to creep back into our hearts to give us a divided heart. Because as we've seen throughout Matthew's gospel, there is no place for a divided heart in the kingdom of God. Uh, A house divided cannot stand. Our hearts are the Lord's or they are not. And doesn't he deserve all of them? You cannot love the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of the beloved son because they are at odds with one another. They are leading in separate directions. And yet even as we know that, we know that this tension between the world we live in and the world we were created for is present in our lives. Think about what we see in the the broken condition of these men. They loved the attention of people. They trusted in the power of Rome. They lived for the pleasure and comforts of this world such that when God asked them to give it up, they could not. They would not. Because of the condition of their hearts. This is deeply troubling to those who only live for this world, even if they have the mask or guise of a religious life. To say that this world is fleeting, to say that it is broken, 
to ask people to use the, the power or position that they have in their hand right now for the sake of the gospel, for a future promise, to use it for God's glory rather than their own glory is a difficult thing to ask and one that can only, a request that can only be fulfilled through the work of the Spirit, the transforming work of the Spirit among people who have received the gospel. Because that is a threat to everything we believe and hold to in our natural broken condition. This religion of the elders and chief priests, their authority had become a crutch upon which they could prop themselves and make themselves feel better or superior to those around them. They didn't want anyone threatening it. They loved their position. They loved their life more than they loved this God supposedly they were serving. In church, we need to be on guard to make sure that we, even as followers of Jesus, don't come to the point when we begin to dismiss the lordship of Christ in order to hold on to earthly comforts. He is worthy of all of us, not just part of us. Let's not say in our hearts echoes of what we see here on the page of the people of God who prove themselves to be far from the heart of God. Let's not say things like, I'll follow Jesus so long as he doesn't threaten my plan to work up the corporate ladder. I'll follow Jesus so long as he doesn't ask me to ignore what I feel. I'll, I'll follow Jesus so long as he doesn't make me uncomfortable. I'll follow Jesus so long as he doesn't mess with my kid's ball schedule. I'll follow Jesus so long as he doesn't ask for too much money. I'll follow Jesus so long as he doesn't ask me to move. I'll follow Jesus so long as he doesn't ask me to give up that relationship that I hold dearly. But hear me, friends. Any limit on our response to Jesus reveals a divided heart. And that's a response that is not worthy of Christ. He deserves a wholly devoted heart. So let's consider a proper response to the work of Jesus. Let's consider someone who revealed a heart fully devoted to Jesus. The reaction of a grateful woman. This reaction is profoundly different. Matthew introduces us to a woman who was with Jesus at the house of Simon, a leper whom Jesus had previously healed in the area of Bethany. The Gospel of John tells us that this woman was actually Mary, the sister of a guy named Lazarus, whom you may have heard of. Do you remember him? He was dead. D-E-A-D, dead. Surely he stinketh by now dead for three days. And do you remember what Jesus did? He went into that tomb. He called to Lazarus. Lazarus come forth. And you know what Lazarus did? He came forth. Mary and Martha had lost hope. They thought if Jesus had come while Lazarus was just sick, there was hope. But now he's dead. Jesus, what can you do? And Jesus showed them, proved to him that he is the resurrection and the life. And that he has a power that is greater than death. And this same Mary is 
now here. And, and she seems to be listening to the teaching of Jesus more than anyone else. She actually is believing what Jesus is saying. She's heard this declaration that he's going to die. And she begins to act upon it. She begins to be moved by all that Christ has done for her and will do for her. She may not even fully understand the work of the sacrifice of Jesus, but she must worship him. And so she does something extraordinary in verses 6 to 13. Listen to this. Again, Jesus at this house, Simon the leper in Bethany, a woman, we know to be Mary, came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? She's done a beautiful thing for me. You'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. And in pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared it. She's done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole of the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Mary takes this ointment that cost about a year's wages. It's a lot of money. It's probably the most valuable thing she has. And in one moment, gives it. Breaks the jar, pours every ounce of it on Jesus. You know, it's hard to be threatened by Jesus when you realize how much he loves you. It's hard to be threatened by the message of Christ when you see the love that is driving it. Mary had experienced much at the hands of Jesus and she realized, maybe not fully, that the work he began in Lazarus was gonna move forward in even greater ways. Think about what the story of Lazarus prepares us for, friends. I'm not sure there's a better declaration of the gospel in all the scripture than the story of Lazarus because all of us in this room, the Bible says, we're dead. And it's a worse death than the death of Lazarus. Spiritual, eternal death. We were dead in our trespasses and yet... In the same way that Jesus showed up to that grave, he showed up to our grave and he called each one of us by name and said, son or daughter, come forth. And in the power of the spirit, you know what we did? We said, yes, Lord. Not of our own merit, not of anything that we've done, but by the power and love of God. It's by grace we have been saved, not of our own works. It's a work of faith, which is a gift from God. This realization here in Mary that, that Jesus is up to something greater. There's a greater work that is being prepared and he is offering his life to make it happen. He will be broken and spilled out. The greatest offering so that we could step into abundant eternal life. And friends, when we realize that, when we realize the love that Jesus has shown us, when we realize that he has withheld nothing from us, but giving everything to us, what could we withhold from him? Isn't he worth it all? 
isn't the only proper response, extravagant, reckless, fully committed worship. That's the only proper response to all that Christ is. And I just wanna encourage us as we think about the full sacrifice of Christ over these next few weeks, can we just begin to pray even now that the Lord would move our hearts toward alignment with Jesus, toward worship of Jesus. It can be a little bit morbid, I think, sometimes to think about death and destruction, especially the way that we'll do it over the next few weeks. But I hope that that we don't see it as morbid. I hope that we see it as glorious because of, of what his death and his suffering mean for us. What it leads to. Let's let's take full advantage of this opportunity and ask the Lord to to more align our hearts with his heart leading to an overflow of worship. It's, It's a stunning thing to see in our text that it's not the chief priests and elders, it's not even the disciples, specifically Judas, who is most aligned with the heart of God. It's Mary. Finally, we have one more reaction to consider, another wicked reaction. And this final one is perhaps most surprising because it's from one of the disciples, the reaction of Judas. Judas has just been rebuked. In the Gospel of John, we we find out, chapter 12, that Judas is the one who was most upset about this act of worship. And he says here, it's because we could have given this money to the poor, but we also learn in the Gospel of John is that Judas was taking a little bit of that money off the top and putting it in his pocket. See, he saw a year's wages he could have sold, and he sees an opportunity, a business opportunity, to make Judas a little more rich. And he's so offended by the act that he sees and and the rebuke that Jesus offers that he seeks out the very people who are trying to destroy Jesus and offers his help for the right price. Look at verses 14 to 16. One of the 12, his name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. 30 pieces of silver. That's four months' wages. That's what you pay someone, according to the law, when an ox, one of your oxen, kills somebody else, a servant of someone else. That's what Jesus was worth to Judas. You see, the moment... Judas heard the call to servanthood rather than conquest and power he was out. And he sought to get whatever he could out of Jesus before all of this was over. And it's a shocking thing to consider, but it is true that in many ways, Judas is not very different than the scribe or the the chief priests and the elders. He thought Jesus was his big payday. 
He, he looked to Jesus the same way that the, the chief priests and elders looked to Rome. They trusted in Rome for power. They trusted in Rome for, for comfort, for privilege. Judas was looking to Jesus to give him the same thing that they were looking to Rome for. But listen, Jesus is not just a different means for us to get what we always wanted in our broken hearts. He's not a means to an end. He is the end. He's the reason for which we were created. What's really tragic about this is that Judas did not allow Jesus to redefine his desires. He didn't even stop to consider, hey, you know what? He is the son of God. So maybe I should ask whether or not what he wants is better than what I want when I find out those two things aren't aligned. Nope, he just got out. Worst of all, he worked to betray Jesus. And how? I mean, he, he heard Jesus teach. He saw the miracles. He ate with Jesus, and yet he betrayed him. Now, before we get too high on our horse here, friends, isn't that the story of humanity? Isn't that the story of all of us apart from Christ? Haven't we all turned our backs in sin against our creator? Haven't we all betrayed Jesus by choosing insignificant things over him? Haven't there been moments where we resisted aligning ourselves with Christ because it didn't suit our own agenda? It's what makes us wicked. It's what makes us sinners. It's what makes us in need of a savior. And it's why when we recognize that Jesus came for that purpose, to take our place upon the cross, to bear the judgment that we deserved, it's why it should lead us to the response of Mary and not Judas. Friends, we should not come to church or serve Christ because we think it's advantageous to us to do so. You know, it used to be that being a member of a local church was a good thing for business. In fact, in some cases, at times in our country, you couldn't even have a business if you weren't a member of a local church. That's how society was ordered, but boy, do things change quickly. Now it could be a disadvantage to your business to be associated with Christ. So what's your response? You're gonna cash out or go all in? Will you seek to redefine Jesus and his kingdom according to your expectations? Or will you allow Christ and the ministry of the word and the power of the spirit to redefine your expectations to suit his? Let's receive this encouragement from Matthew today and ask the Lord to search our hearts. Are they divided? Are we aligned? Or... Even on the other side of Christ, have we allowed love for this world to creep back in to where we've put a limit on our worship of Christ? Let's press a little bit more now into some responses, some ways that we can think about walking in greater faithfulness as a result of our time before the word today. And let me just first say a word to those in the room who would say that you're not followers of Jesus. Would you receive the gift of Christ's sacrifice? Would you ask the Spirit to help you even now align your heart with Christ through the power of the gospel? The Bible makes it very clear. 
Loving the things of this world will lead to your destruction. Loving Jesus will lead to life. You are dead in your trespasses. You are separated from a holy and righteous God and that will lead to an eternity of separation. The only way you can be brought to life, the only way you can be reconnected to a holy and righteous God is through the Son. Would you repent and believe in Him and salvation today? Just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to encourage you in this, point you toward Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith who desires to save you. Will you step into that salvation today? For those of us who are in Christ, let me challenge us in a couple of ways. Firstly, examine the condition of your heart. Would you ask the Lord even now to examine the condition of your heart? Is it divided? Are there places in our lives where we begin to see compromise in our devotion to the Lord? Because hear me, eventually... A misaligned heart will reveal itself. You can look good on a Sunday. You can look good in conversations. But eventually, if there's a divide, if it's misaligned, that will show up. Uh, You heard Pastor Aaron talk about our marriage conference this past weekend. It was wonderful. Had a great time. A lot of things happened that should stay at the marriage conference. And so if you were there, you know what I'm talking about. Don't be posting pictures of any blue suits, anywhere online. A lot of exciting things. And the first night we had a little bit of a surprise. Everything looked fine. Uh, The buildings looked fine. The bathrooms looked fine. Downstairs in the preschool room looked fine. Until it didn't. Here's what happened. Some ladies in the bathroom upstairs, they started hearing the the toilets making interesting sounds. I said, there's something not right with this toilet. Everything looks okay, but I'm hearing something that makes me believe that something's not right. So they brought it to our attention. Before long, water started bubbling up out of the toilets. What's worse is it just started pouring out of the ceilings right below the bathroom. We had some faithful friends here who worked diligently to make sure it stopped. The reality is we had no idea there was something blocking the pipes. Everything looked fine until it wasn't. Let me just challenge you in your own life. If there is a block in your heart, if there's something clogging your affections for the Lord that you've allowed to enter into your life at some point, even if everything looks okay on the outside, what is in there will come out. It will. What are we pouring into our hearts? Are we pouring in things that encourage us toward greater faithfulness to Christ that that helps us see what Christ values and choose to value that same thing? Or are we letting things in that will clog our hearts, clog our devotion to the Lord and, and cause us to be compromised? Because friends, our culture is radically challenging us to redefine and reconsider what God has said is true. To to challenge us, to tempt us, to begin to value what God says we should not value. Even this past week, I heard someone with a, 
a really prominent status in our society say, I am a Christian, and, and because I'm a Christian, I must be for abortion. Because Christians care about justice, and if you care about justice, then you care about abortion. I'm a Christian, and I support the LGBTQ community. Because if you're a Christian and you love, you must support the LGBTQ community. Now, I want to say something, and I want you to hear every ounce of love that I can muster in the way that I say it, okay? Don't take anything else away except a pastoral heart for the good of the people that we're about to talk about, okay? It is not loving to affirm something that God has said is not good. It is not loving. Listen, we want to love our LGBTQ neighbors. We want to show them God's love for them in Jesus. We want to love those who have made the wrong choice to get an abortion in really difficult circumstances. We want to show them that there's hope in the gospel in Christ. But it is not loving to affirm in them what God said is not good. It is, it is loving to say to them, here's God's design and plan for your life, and here's where you can find true flourishing and blessing when you live in accordance with his design. And the only way you can really do that is to step into Christ. But if we are not intaking the scripture, if we're not asking the the Lord to refine our minds as a spiritual act of worship and give us the mind of Christ, we will be discipled by a culture that is leading us away from God, not toward God. And we will begin to say, call what is good evil and what is evil good. And that helps no one. Helps no one. What's loving is to declare the gospel. What's loving is to show them the love of Christ and articulate the love of Christ. So let me ask you, is your heart compromised? Are you beginning to doubt what God has said is good? Are you beginning to see a divide between what Jesus values and what you value? To the point where if you're not careful, you could look upon the words of Christ in a disdainful way. Would you hear this morning, and students, this is going to be really tough for you. Would you hear this morning the gentle rebuke of Christ? Don't allow anyone else to define for you what is good. Let Christ, the word of God, through the word of God, define for us what is good. And may we stand on it. May we stand on it. For their good. For the good of the world. Because we believe that true human flourishing and blessing is in the created design of God. Now this takes daily work. Again, If you're in school, if you're watching things on television, if you're watching award shows like the Grammys last week, you're going to be indoctrinated with things that are trying to disciple you away from Jesus. 
Let's be proactive. Let's be daily active to make sure that our hearts are aligned with Christ by being diligent in reading the word, memorizing the word, diligent in prayer, diligent in being a part of Christian community to help us be sharpened and shaped into the image of Jesus. Church, let's not seek to conform Jesus into our image. That's idolatry. Let's be conformed into the image of Christ. That's glorious. And finally, can we consider this morning what extravagant gift we can give to Jesus? If you've received Christ, if you've recognized the way that he's loved you, if your heart is aligned with him, it's time for us to break our alabaster jars. It's time for us to go all in to show that Christ is of greatest value in our life by giving him that which we great, greatly value. Let me just encourage us. That could, be, that could be spelled out in a number of ways. You can give financially. You can give of yourself. You can give of your time. But ultimately, it's a call to give all of ourselves. Jesus gave all of himself for us. Can we, by God's grace, work to give him more of us day by day until the day he returns to take us home? Wouldn't that be honoring to him? Wherever you are, would you bow your heads? Ask the Lord to help you know how to respond to the, the preaching of his word today. Do you know Christ? Come talk to us. We'd love to pray with you if you don't. Encourage you toward Jesus. If you do, is your heart aligned with Jesus? Have you put conditions on following Christ? What does that say about what you truly love? And would you commit in the power of the Spirit, by God's grace, you are able to do this because of the Spirit of God within you. Would you commit to day by day seeking to become more like Jesus and more devoted to what he values? For his glory, for your good, and for the good of all those around us. Father, would you help us to be faithful a more faithful people because of our time before your word today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You stand and respond as the Lord leads. Thank you for worshiping with us. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website, bayleaf.org.